Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Great to have you here, as always. We have a busy, busy show today. Give a little, John, give them a sense of what's coming up from over the weekend. It's 1999. I'm on Meet the Press, a show now headed by Sleepy Eyes Chuck Todd. He's a sleeping son of a bitch, I'll tell you. Fake as hell, CNN. The worst. So fake. Fake news. Women. Women. We love you. We love you. Hey, didn't we surprise them with women during the election? Maxine Waters, a very low IQ individual. We will impeach him. We will impeach the press. But he hasn't done anything wrong. It doesn't matter. We will impeach him. She's a low IQ individual. You can't help her. She really is. And Connor Lamb, Lamb the Sham, right? Lamb the Sham. <laughs> that was that was some of the uh, the most memorable stuff that President Trump said over the weekend when he was in Pennsylvania, uh, trying to help out the Republican candidate there, uh, Sacconi, who is up against Connor Lamb, as you just heard, La- Lamb the Sham, as he will now be known to some, I suppose, although he's. Uh, as as elections go, he's a pretty formidable candidate for the Republican to be facing off against. He's a former Marine and is a federal prosecutor. Uh, but Trump was out there and given a political speech, and he got that crowd very fired up. I watched the whole speech. It is still amazing to me, folks, to this day, each time I watch one, looking at the Trump speeches and just how entertaining they are and how engrossing they are compared to your usual political fare of the past. It used to be a painful thing for me as someone who works in a sense in politics or in news media to have to sit around and watch these, you know, it's the same stuff, the same speeches all the time. Trump is uh, tremendously entertaining. That is to be sure. And that, uh, that Pennsylvania speech over the weekend was, wow, there were some real, Real moments in it. Real moments in it. Uh, I wanted to tell you that coming up this hour, we have Attorney General Jeff Sessions joining us. So the Attorney General of the United States is going to join us to talk a bit about uh, school safety and what the administration is willing to do, try and get more school safety, try to improve school safety. Uh, So he'll be joining us uh, at the bottom of the hour. So in just a a little bit, he will be uh, with us here on the show. We're very much looking forward to having... Attorney General Sessions uh, with us. And uh, then we, we've got a, so much to talk about today that I am unfortunately sure that we will not get to it all. But 
on the good side of things, it's just because there's so much going on right now that's worth our attention and worth our time. You have the continued debate over school safety and gun control. We'll get into that. You have North Korea and the looming talks between the president and the dictator of North Korea that has gotten so many has gotten so many folks uh, spun up one way or another. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Uh, Betsy DeVos might even be a topic of conversation on the show after she gave an interview over the weekend and is part of some of these school safety efforts. And if I have time, although this may have to wait until tomorrow, the uh, poisoning, uh, the uh, the poisoning using military-grade nerve agent uh, of a former Russian uh, official. Uh, we'll talk about that. So this is something that that's something that is on the uh, on the docket. But I don't, I don't know how much time we're going to have to get through all this today. So I, I wanted to start with where we are on the. Um, I want to start with where we are on gun safety. Uh, or I'm sorry. See. I just did it by it happens, guys. School safety and the left's push for gun control, uh, because now, now things have gotten well beyond where they were in the, in the early days with some of these uh, young people. I mean, they're not kids. Some of them are adults, I think. I think they're 18. But the these uh, members of the Never Again movement that have been put out there for all of us to see and listen to. Now they're kind of freelancing a bit more on topics, you know, and now we're supposed to listen to particularly this uh, David Hogg, who is a go to for any number of policy issues. He's become an all inclusive policy expert. Now, what CNN has going on here, I've called a puppet show because that's what this is. CNN is using someone else as a vessel to push their agenda. And this is a, a young man who I don't care how smart he is or how much life experience he's had at, at the age of 18. I don't I don't give a crap what he thinks about overall education policy, the credentials of the education secretary. And it is it is an embarrassment. And CNN should be embarrassed that he is being given a platform to now just wax philosophical on whatever he wants. You know, oh, what should the what should the Treasury Department do? You know, what do we think about the Fed and interest rates? David Hogg's going to weigh in now. Has he ever paid taxes? No, but let's hear what he's got to say about how the Fed's operating. Monetary policy by David Hogg. I mean, this look, I'm not I'm not making fun of or demeaning Hogg or any of the others who are speaking as people. I'm just saying that their opinions are now being held up as things we need to hear in areas that are well beyond even school safety, which in and of itself is an area I don't really care what they have to say. It does not make you an unassailable expert in a subject matter to have been victimized or near the victims of an issue. Does not mean that you are not able to be criticized. You know this. We've talked about this before here on the show. But Mr. Hogg is now also an attack, uh, an attack vessel for Democrats. I said the puppet show continues. And if you push back on it, then you're mean, you're uncaring, you're nasty, you're a bad person. Here's what uh, Hogg said about Betsy DeVos. What do you think of this latest proposal from the White House to create this blue ribbon commission run by the education secretary to study all these sensitive matters, including raising the age limit down the road? 
I think it's a good step to make sure that we are taking action. I'm glad to see that. But I think it's also important to realize that Betsy DeVos basically paid for her position. She doesn't really have any experience in this area. She doesn't support public schools. She paid over $200 million just to get this title. And I think that she's not the right person for this. I think if we went to the DOJ and had a special commission that way, perhaps, it would be a better process to investigate these incidences and investigate them like almost an airplane crash, where we spend months on end researching how this stuff happened. And another thing is we can't do that because the CDC isn't allowed to do research into these areas because of the Dickey Amendment. And because of the lobbying of the NRA on Trump, I'm glad to see that he did take action and he seemed to take a lot of steps in the right direction. But then once he met with the NRA, he showed that he's no better than all the other politicians because he's owned by them, too. And it just shows the inaction because of these, this lobbyist organization that's continued to terrorize our children and hurt our future. The NRA terrorizes children, folks. This is what this kid says. Terrorizes children. By the, the talking points are... Straight from Daily Kos, Huff Post, you name it. I mean, this is exactly what you would expect radical left journalists to say. And now we know, as I said in the very beginning, that they're they're professional left wing agitators and organizers who are involved with these kids that are bringing them to events, that are booking them on TV shows, that are now a part of this conversation. Do we really think that they're not also coaching them as to what to say on TV? I mean, that, that kid ran through that as though it had been quite well rehearsed. And I've spent a lot of time on TV talking about all kinds of issues. And I can tell when someone's really, you know, got to go to this, got to go to this, got to go to this. And he, it really worked hard to get. We're talking about Betsy DeVos and a commission. And you notice at the end, it's the NRA's a terrorist organization. That's quite a transition, isn't it? That's not really a logical place to go if you're actually dealing with the subject matter. But if you've been coached, if you've got people telling you this is what you need to hit, this is what you need to say, then you might all of a sudden shoehorn into a short TV segment. The NRA terrorizes children. The CDC is not allowed to study gun violence. That is not true. It's because the C- <laughs> that's one of the older myths that the anti-gun crowd often trots out there. But the CDC study. Think about what what that means. Centers for Disease Control studying gun violence. That's not a disease. And in the past, when they've done it, it just turns into an exercise in lobbying via a government organization against the Second Amendment. Doesn't work. That's not the CDC's role. You know, this would be like saying, "Well, you know what? Why don't we have Why don't we have NASA? Oh, that's right. NASA does actually get involved in climate change sometimes. Why don't we have NASA study gun violence while we're at it? It's not what they do. It's not their role." But people say, oh, it's because they want to stop the hashtag science from happening, right? And that the NRA owns these politicians. That's a really demeaning and gross thing to say. But you, did, did you see Wolf Blitzer correct any of the things that this, this young man had to say on TV? No. Did you see him say, well, hold on, the NRA is not terrorizing children? No, they didn't push back on it at all. They they feed into this. They believe this. Oh, and his line that... This needs to be studied like a like an airplane crash. Uh, okay, it's already being studied all the time by the media, by federal investigators. We're getting more information about it, but I think he tipped his hand a bit when he said for months and months on end. So we can just keep hearing, keep hearing about it, keep hearing about it. We know what happened here. There's some additional information that comes out, but by and large, we know what happened, and it was a a systemic failure 
of the authorities, of the people that have been given the power and have the obligation to protect us. That was at the heart of this issue, not the Second Amendment, not law abiding gun owners. But it is just all about political action. As I've said, this is very Alinsky, my friends. Just find a way to mobilize. Find a way to mobilize people on a political issue and then use them for your own purposes. And because of the emotions of the left, the anti-gun left on gun control, it's a it's a fantastic mobilizer for their for all progressive issues. Right. They just get them worked up, get them going and then send them out to attack anyone who believes in the Second Amendment. I just thought it was interesting to see how much less attention the non anti-Second Amendment students involved at the Stoneman Douglas High School, how much less attention they get. It's not not really a surprise, is it? Oh, also, I, while I'm at it, I'm just going to really... Paid for her position. I mean, it's illegal to actually buy office. So w- what is he saying there? Betsy DeVos is somebody who's been working for... Yeah, she's like a billionaire. She doesn't need this. She believes in school choice. Why would kids... At a public school where there were, I would note, so many failures that have been unearthed already by the people that were supposed to be protecting that school, from the sheriff to the school authorities, everybody. Why, but why would kids involved in any capacity in the school system immediately lash out at someone like Betsy DeVos, who is a nice lady who's trying to do as much as she can to help particularly minority and underprivileged children have some hope some prayer of going to a better school. But with school choice, you see the gross underbelly of the left, which is that it's really all about power. They don't care about poor minorities. They don't care about kids that are trapped in failing or failed schools. What they care about are teachers unions. They care about adults who are on the public system of payment and benefits who are public sector employees who vote for Democrats and keep Democrats in power. That's what they want. The hostility to DeVos in all this is, is illuminating, I think. Is illuminating. So uh, we, we're going to have the Attorney General, as I said, joining us here in just a few minutes. So Jeff Sessions will be with us. Uh, he'll be joining the Freedom Hut to talk to us about what's going on with this. I, I've got a lot more, though, on this, including the other, the other the students you're not hearing from on this. They're just getting a fraction of the media attention. It's all so obvious, isn't it? True bias, by the way. The the biggest bias you see in the media isn't really in the way that they cover things, although that's important. That's certainly a, a manner that this manifests itself. But the biggest bias is in what they do and do not cover. Who do they give a platform to? Who do they ignore? Who do you see on TV? Who do you, who, who is left out on their own? In a national conversation like this. All right, we've got a lot more coming. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. I'll be right back.
Well, there are some very powerful forces that are arrayed against changing the status quo, and uh, that is what we are up against. But the, the reality is that the majority of people in this country support the idea of giving parents that kind of freedom, and so this legislation is going to continue to advance at the state level. At the national level, we're going to continue to push this conversation and to encourage our lawmakers to look at ways that they can encourage it both in their states and take steps nationally that will help parents free, be free to make those decisions for All their right. kids. Giving parents some prayer of finding a good school for their, their boy or girl in, instead of wherever you live, that's where you're stuck and the school that you're assigned to is the school that you're going to be in. That's it. For that, Betsy DeVos is among the most hated administration figures by the left. And I know that's crazy because you're talking about an administration that's had its, you know, it's had Bannon and the Mooch and the Hope Hicks and all, you know, all these other characters and figures out there. But they really hate Betsy DeVos because she talks about school choice because she stands for school choice, which tells you a lot about where the Democrat Party really is, particularly when it comes to underprivileged children uh, and minority children. Um, And so they pushed her on the issue of guns. And, you know, look, DeVos got a little caught up in trying to give some of these answers. This was on CBS. I don't think an assault weapons in schools carried by any school personnel is the appropriate thing. But again, this is an issue that I think is best decided at the local level by communities and by state. Yeah, I, you know, this is DeVos responding to the question of should teachers have assault weapons? Which I know all of you listening are like, oh, my goodness. So now this this is what we got to deal with. Now the answer is pushing people into uh, into into a conversation that no one's having. No one's saying that teachers need to be walking around uh, with an AR, AR-15 in a sling, although, you know, be effective. If people are going to have teachers that are caring, it's going to be concealed carry for a whole bunch of reasons, including just the feasibility and ease of use uh, you know the whole the comfort of anyway I, i'm getting even further but you see they're just asking her that to make her defend a, a a silly question because they're going after on everything and it has to do with school choice and has, you know she's right at the center of the storm because she's the school choice lady that is also on a commission to look at school safety when it comes to guns so you've got two areas where the left gets super heated vicious and doesn't care what the facts are. Guns and school choice, and she's in the middle of that, and that's why things are going to get rough. Uh, we've got Attorney General Sessions calling in here in uh, right after the break, actually. We're going to talk to uh, Jeff Sessions about what should be done in the schools and more. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, everyone, we're very pleased to be joined on the show uh, by the Attorney General. None other than Jeff Sessions himself is with us. Attorney General Sessions, thank you so much. Hello, good to be with you, Buck. So tell me a bit about where we are right now on trying to make school safer. It's obviously been the biggest conversation in the country over the last few weeks. Um, I guess we could start with with hardening schools. I mean, there's a few major issues. Where are we on this right now? 
Well, the president just issued today uh, an order. Um, in fact, he's got the whole government focused. Uh, um, he is really an effective leader. And so he's issued a number of orders himself and different cabinet members like um, I am uh, issuing uh, uh, more detailed orders on areas in our in our jurisdiction. Uh, so first of all, he did talk about hardening the schools. He believes a have to be protected because responding uh, is often just too late. Uh, I was with a sheriff uh, last week uh, in Florida who uh, has a program, long had a program, to train teachers to who can carry firearms. And he, as he says, uh, you really only have seconds when these situations occur. Minutes is often too late. Uh, so the president supports that, and uh, we, we, are, we want to enhance the say-something uh, situation, say something, say something. In other words, uh, that will work, but we've got to figure out a way that it doesn't fall through the cracks when you have good warnings. And I've got some thoughts about that, and we need to improve that. Yeah, well, and we'll be looking for ways to uh, make sure that the uh, firearms laws are being followed. Uh, Attorney General, tell me, how can we do more on in the see something, say something side? Because clearly the FBI received uh, more than one tip, but there was one tip that was particularly detailed about the Florida shooter. And the ball was dropped, as so many have said. Uh, is it is it a structural fix? I mean, how do we actually get the threat reporting to be run up the chain more quickly so that there can actually be effective action taken by either local or federal law enforcement? Well, the day after this occurred, the uh, new director of the FBI sent his uh, new deputy director over to West Virginia, where this all is centered, and uh, conducted an immediate investigation. Uh, I don't think this is going to happen again like it happened last time. However, uh, you also had sheriff's deputies and law enforcement officers going out there multiple times hearing concerns, and they just don't know what to do. Almost no one is being given psychiatric evaluation today and then being uh, housed in some sort of a, a care facility, given medication and being carefully evaluated before being released. We've got to move the pendulum back some on that. Some people who are threatening family members, putting guns to their heads, uh, idolizing and affirming um, mass killers, uh, these people are dangerous and they need to be evaluated more intently. Then you've got, think about this, Juvenile courts keep the record secret. The medical association under and uh, groups have the hip of the secrecy laws on releasing medical information. Schools have policies, particularly from the previous administration, that barred them from sharing possible criminal activity with the police, and the police don't seem to feel they have any place they can take kids who are dangerous and get them actually evaluated. So we have a real problem in making sure that that we b- break down these walls, these silos, and make sure that if a person is identified as a danger, that something happens. It just cannot continue like we're doing. We're speaking to Attorney General Jeff Sessions right now on the line about school safety and, and how to 
try and prevent uh, another shooting like what we saw in Florida. Uh, Attorney General, the issue of the age when one can buy certain firearms has gotten a lot of attention as well. The White House has said in the last 24 hours they're still open to changes there, but it might happen on a state-by-state issue. What can you tell us about the 18 versus 21 age limit for buying uh, certain firearms? The president uh, has, um, you know, established a commission, federal commission on school safety, chaired by Betsy DeVos, our uh, secretary of education. And one of the things that they've been asked to recommend on is the question of age for firearm purchases, particularly uh, the um, so-called assault rifle um, purchase. And um, that will be a part of the uh, work of the commission. And uh, some of that can be done in state court, I think, and some of that could be done in federal One more for you, Attorney General Sessions, and that is on the issue of uh, sanctuary cities. If I can just ask you, what are what are the processes that are in place next? Uh, You've been very clear that you will not allow the sanctuary policies to stand. Where is the, the battle over sanctuary cities as we're on air? California has passed some laws that are really extreme. For example, they tell a business that if the ICE officers show up uh, and want to come in, they can't let them in. And if they do come, they have to warn their uh, uh, employees in advance of the ICE officers coming. There are a number of just extreme provisions in their law that undermine public safety, that make no sense whatsoever, and we just can't allow this to happen. So some of this uh, we're going to challenge legally, and some of this we've got to ask the, the, the people to speak up on. You're not entitled to enter America unlawfully. If you enter America unlawfully, you're subject to being deported. And if you enter America unlawfully and get caught, caught with a crime of violence, selling drugs, or committing some other criminal act, you certainly should be at the top of the list for deportation. Even the Obama administration advocated that. But these sanctuary cities are even protecting the uh, the violent criminals from uh, being turned over to the people who are in charge of the deportations, which is the ICE officers. It cannot continue. We've got to get this under control. And really, if you think about it, when you take that position, as these sanctuary jurisdictions are, you are saying we do not believe in immigration law. We believe in open borders. If anybody gets in their country, we never support their deportation. And you can't uh, do anything about it, federal government. And that's just a, a totally unacceptable and radical policy. It is it is lawlessness and the advocacy of lawlessness, to be sure. Uh, but uh, Attorney General Sessions, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you making the time today. Thank you, Buck. It's, it's good to chat with you. You too, sir. Team, we're going to roll into a break. We'll be back with much more. president's laid out what his positions are, uh, both on the school safety front and what he thinks the best path forward specific to immediate actions that we can take, and also things that need further review on determining the best path forward. Um, That's the focus of the president, not one or two interviews, but on actual policy that can help protect the safety and security of school kids across this country. 
They're asking about the DeVos interview in that White House press conference. Two, they get to wrap two issues into one here and just go, they get to go after DeVos because of her stance on guns. And she's, I'm not even clear she has a stance on guns, really, but they get to attack her on that. And they get to attack the most visible school choice advocate of this administration, which drives the left uh, completely insane. Um, but I, I played before some audio from David Hogg, who now has hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. He's been on the Bill Maher show. He is a a a pundit and policy uh, expert, apparently, or at least is being treated as one by by the media. You know, there's another individual I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Maybe many of you are Kyle Kashov, who is pro. Second Amendment, and is also a survivor of the Stoneman Douglas uh, mass shooting. And he's been speaking about his version of what he, what he thinks would be best to do for school safety here. There are four parts to this bill. One, prevention training for the entire school ecosystem using evidence-based methods that actually work. This was the bill. This was on the paper that was proposed and showed the yellow piece of paper. Two, we have to propose funding to harden schools with whatever technology infrastructure they would find most effective. Three, threat assessment teams to stop school violence before it happens. And four, better coordination with law enforcement. There is no perfect solution, but there are steps we can take to come together and make a change, and this is the best place to start. Everything Kyle said there seems to me to be very constructive and and reasonable in terms of the approach. Uh, I think that that's, uh, I think that that is obvious from what the, the way this younger man approaches it. Um, but I would then also just note that finally you've seen some editorials, or at least one editorial, finally you've seen the argument publicly made that I've made to you here on the show in recent weeks, which is that this whole notion of school shootings as an urgent national problem is overblown. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, obviously, because we just suffered a terrible national tragedy. But the idea that this is something that we are on a policy level in a position where we have to take dramatic and immediate action that is likely to stop or prevent this. That's just an emotional response. It is just the way that we feel right now about it, but it's not not looking at it through a lens of what is the best thing to do. This is a piece in the Washington Post. School shootings are extraordinarily rare why is fear of them driving policy? And let me just share some of the information in here. The first recorded school shooting in the United States took place in 1840 when a law student shot and killed his professor at the University of Virginia. But the modern fear dawned on April 20th, 1999, when Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris killed 12 classmates and a teacher and then themselves at Colorado's Columbine High. Since then, the murder of children in their classrooms has come to seem common a regular feature of modern American life, and our fears so strong that we are certain the next horror is sure to come not long after the last. The, ed- the, the editorial continues. The Education Department reports that roughly 50 million children attend public schools for roughly 180 days per year. Since Columbine, approximately 200 public school students have been shot while school was in session, including the recent slaughter at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Okay, so 
when you start to look at this, my friends, and break down the numbers, the statistical likelihood of any given public school student being killed by a gun in school on any given day is one in 614 million. It's not that there's no risk, he says, but there's a very, very, very low risk. And here are some other things to keep in mind. It is much more likely that a child will be harmed and and or lose his or her life. No, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make people scared about other things now. Traveling to or from school or picking up a disease at school. Much more likely. Statistically, orders of magnitude more likely. But you'll notice there's not a major push for, I don't know, uh, additional inoculation programs in schools. In fact, the moment you get, and I am not trying to open this discussion right now, but the moment you get into uh, vaccinations and the school population, the politics of that become very uh, toxic and nasty very quickly. But uh, those are much more statistically significant problems. We are all shown these uh, this this footage on TV. We read these stories. We see these traumatized children, these traumatized young people, and it has an outsized impact on our psychology. And the Democrats primary motive, the Democrats primary uh, method for getting political mobilization is through emotion, not reason, not analysis, not argument. In fact, I, I might even return to this later on in the show in a different context. But that's why school shootings for them are such a politically useful moment. And that is how they have treated this. And that is what they have done. They've decided that now is the time to mobilize. And by the way, on this list as well, your child is actually more likely to suffer severe injury and or death playing sports at school. Playing sports. So. It, it, you know, do we ban all high school sports because you're more likely to get a serious injury, including paralysis or death from sports than you are from some of these other things? Are we going to take the if it saves just one life attitude about this? As I've said to you, we would save thousands of lives if we made the speed limit 25 miles an hour nationwide on highways. Never us thousands, thousands of lives. People don't want to do that. When you look at the scale, the real scale of school shootings, and it's taken a while for people to finally come around. I think I started saying this to you maybe last week or the week before. Now you're seeing the editorials. You know, everybody, school shootings are not the problem that the left wants you to believe they are right now because it is useful as a means of attacking gun control. They're exploiting our fear, folks. They're going after what keeps us up at night. They're going after your worries as parents. And they are using it for their own purposes. I think there are good faith efforts to look at the background check system right now that Republicans and are, are willing to go forward with this. Well, I think there are some places where well, we shouldn't fool ourselves. The things that we're talking about doing that might have an impact and that don't have a tremendous cost are very, very unlikely to prevent in incredibly unlikely event by the numbers so sure am i open to some of these things fine hardening schools why not well what's the cost going to be by the way but that's maybe a discussion we'll have another time some concealed carry in schools can't hurt in my opinion 
Maybe it helps a lot. Fine. What do I think the likelihood is that you will have any of these proposals that are under consideration either in the state of Florida or nationwide right now that actually stop a major attack? I think it's it's pretty low, but there are some places where trying makes sense. There are some places where I'm willing to make that uh, the trade-off of effort, time, and resources because of even a very, very, very unlikely possibility of preventing one of these attacks. But I, I, I will say it. A lot of people don't want to say it right now. It's not, it's not going to get you attention. People are going to think that you're not being moral and you're not being, uh, you're not willing to take the brave. The, you know, the brave stance right now is the popular stance. That always should give you a moment of pause. Because if everybody thinks it's the right thing to do, I don't think it's necessarily brave, right? Probably not. Chances are when you're talking about major policy and political issues. So I'm uh, a bit more of a skeptic on this stuff than most other folks. we got our two coming up. We're going to talk immigration. Stay with me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you very much for being here. We have some breaking news for you. Uh, First up, these bombings in Austin, Texas. We know that there have been three bombings so far in the last uh, couple of weeks. Two dead, three injured from the three bombings. So... Police are looking into this. They are package bombs. People have opened on their on the porch or outside their front door, and they have so far no leads, no sense of motive. All we know is three bombs that are related, according to Austin police, and that's what. And we've got two people dead, three people injured from bombs. That right now it seems random. No one knows what's going on. No motives yet, even being discussed. They're just trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. What a terrible situation, a tragedy. Those folks have lost their lives and people have been injured by this. Uh, So if we have any more information on this, we will certainly bring that to you. But we've got three different blasts in Austin. Police believe they are related. They've killed two and injured three. Um, They're package bombs, so relatively small, uh, small IEDs, small improvised explosive devices. So that's one bit of breaking news we're going to keep an eye on throughout the hour here on the show. Anything else comes up, we will let you know as we go forward. And then on Russia collusion, or better put, the lack thereof, the House Republicans have uh, shut down their, have finished, I should say, not shut down, but the House Republicans have had a probe going on. You haven't heard much about that one, have you? And they have found no evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. I want to just put out there for you that I don't think that really very many of the people that are that are supportive of the Mueller probe really think that they're going to find any Russia-Trump collusion. There, there, there's a, a radical anti-Trump fringe that still clings to that fantasy, but... I think a vast majority of those who are cheering on the Mueller probe are just hoping that it goes on for as long as possible. It ensnares as many people for non-collusion rate, uh, related crimes as possible and just tries to stop the administration, tries to slow down Trump, tries to prevent 
policies from being enacted. You know, you got the president heading out to California tomorrow. He's going to be looking at prototypes for a wall on our southern border. You have the president over the weekend out in Pennsylvania getting uh, all the folks out there fired up for this congressional election. It's kind of a weird situation. We'll talk more about it, uh, certainly a little bit today, and we'll get into some depth on it tomorrow. Um, But the president has a lot of things that he's trying to accomplish right now. And for those who want nothing more than for the president to fail in those goals, the Mueller probe is just too useful. Too much of the uh, too much vengeance for them to pass up. You know, they, they really just want this to be a weapon against Trump and a and the process is the punishment, as I've told you so many times, because it is true. So the House Republicans say they have no evidence of collusion. This is not going to stop the Mueller probe and the Mueller probe now exists mostly to exist. At some point, they'll probably indict just so it seems like they're doing something. Because all government bureaucrats and bureaucracies will find ways to justify their time and their existence if need be. They'll probably have more Russian trolls. You know, there'll be another slew of uh, indictments or another indictment against multiple defendants in Russia for creating really mean anti-Hillary propaganda on Facebook or something. And people say, see, look at how bad the uh, the collusion was. We'll, we'll talk more about that, by the way, with uh, with Putin Um, with Putin speaking through a translator in just a little bit. We've got some Russia news to discuss, some interesting Russia news to discuss. Uh, But first, I I wanted to to take a step back for a second, because, you know, the president is heading out to California tomorrow. He is going to be looking at prototypes for a wall. And there was one part of his speech in Pennsylvania over the weekend that really uh, stuck out for me. One part of it, other than the... (laughs) What we already played for you, which was some very memorable sound bites from the president, to be sure. Uh, but there was one part of it that I wanted to revisit, and it had to do with Mara Salvatrucha or MS 13. And here is what the president over the weekend had to say about it places that I know so well are loaded up with MS 13, where your daughter walks home. And they don't use guns. You never saw guns. The NRA happens to be very good people, by the way. They want to do the right thing. But they don't use guns. They don't use guns. They like to use knives and other things because it's much more painful. It's much slower. It's much. These are animals. Trump has made MS-13 a name now that people are are really familiar with, despite what they might say over at MSNBC or any of these other places. Oh, who, no one talks about it but Trump. It's not true, actually. In the communities where there's an MS-13 problem, a lot of people talk about it. And it should be a part of the national conversation because it does come from policy choices. I told you on this show about the history of MS-13, how it started in the... Uh, refugee population of immigrants from El Salvador in the United States. And then because of its predominantly in Los Angeles gang activity, there were gang members from MS-13 who were deported back to Central America. And then they became even more powerful. They essentially colonized as crime factories, some of these Central American countries, and continue to have their contacts and their mafia-like behavior in the U.S., 
but MS-13 was also uh, helped along by a policy you'll be quite familiar with. Remember when we were told all about these unaccompanied minors at the U.S. border just a few years back under the Obama administration? Unaccompanied minors. We had these visions, and the media fed those visions, created them even, of 12-year-olds walking through the desert alone you know, and, and being found by Border Patrol picked up and, you know, we had nothing we had. There was nothing we could do other than our, our Christian duty of you know taking care of these children. And that, that was the storyline we're getting. People like me were saying, you know, I got a feeling there's a lot of a lot of 19 year olds who are claiming to be 16 as they cross the border. A lot of 25 year olds who are claiming to be 17 as they're crossing the border. Just a thought. Considering that they show up and say, I don't have any papers. So what, what are you going to do at that point? You're going to say, well, you know, you don't you don't look 17 to me, kid. I mean, think about what Border Patrol is going to go through with that. Well, there was a piece that just uh, just got published. It was actually in The Washington Post. You know, they, they do do real journalism. It's just a question of put, uh, pulling it all together and making sense of the narrative. So it's about what happened in central Long Island, just about an hour, an hour and change east of where I'm doing this show right now, in the, in the center of, of Long Island, um, near a town near the town of Brentwood, uh, Islip, and some of these areas, where there was a school that at one point one of the students, who one of the uh, six students at Brentwood High School in central Long Island, murdered by MS-13 in the last two years, said and told, uh, their, told her parents, that they are taking over the school, referring to MS-13, that MS-13 gangbangers were threatening students, were walking around, and it was known that they were MS-13. And, of course, the ACLU, no surprise, willing to, willing to defend Satan himself if it keeps the donations flowing, the ACLU rushes out to say, well, in, involvement in a gang, even a gang like MS-13, that's so vicious and so violent is not a crime and can't be that there can't be any school action taken against these so 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 the aclu or the nyclu the new york city aclu is doing everything it can to make it basically impossible to defend kids out there from these ms-13 gang members because remember especially we're talking about some of these cartels and ms-13 which is linked to the mexican drug cartels i mean they have assassins who are 13 or 14 years old they don't. The younger, actually, it is. In many cases, they find the better because they can brainwash them into just being completely uh, bereft of any moral compunction whatsoever. They just turn them into little machines of murder. In fact, in Juarez, I think the average for a hit, the average paid to some of these junior hitmen for the cartels, as of a few years ago, was less than a hundred dollars per hit. So there are 16, 17, 18, 19-year-olds showing up at this school in Long Island who are claiming asylum from El Salvador, Honduras, etc. And now you have franchises of MS-13, this vicious gang, which, as the president pointed out, likes to carry around machetes and bats 
and will hack and beat fellow students to death and has done it to six students, six in the last two years. Think about that. You know, we're talking before about the uh, some of the mass shootings in history. I mean, you're, you're looking at you know, how many I think 12 were killed in Columbine. Well, six have been murdered brutally by their fellow students at this one high school in Long Island by MS-13 gang members. Not a lot of not a lot of media attention on this. Some obviously I'm reading news reports about it, but this isn't a part of the narrative. Why is that? Oh, that's because when you actually look at this and you look at these students who are accused of these murders, including a, a gang of students, a, a gang of uh, MS-13 member students who beat two girls to death with baseball bats uh, out Long Island. So when you look at them and you see what's going on here, some of them were part of the wave of resettled refugees picked up at the border under the Obama administration as unaccompanied minors. So, yes, it is in fact the case that some of the people that the United States government took in from Central America as they crossed the U.S.-Mexico border and took them in under the premise that we are a, a loving and caring people and they're fleeing violence, in fact, brought violence, heinous violence, into our country, have committed murders as well as other unspeakable crimes. And oh, also, by the way, many of them show up not only unable to speak English, unable to read or write in any language. What do you think that does to the school system when they're put into it at 18? Good luck trying to convince that 18-year-old that things are going to be easy in the future or easier. So... This is a story they don't want people to really catch on to because, hold on a second, you're telling us that we have MS-13 franchises popping up just outside of New York City. And I know people listening to this in Virginia and in other places across the country say, oh, yeah, we've got MS-13 franchises here, too. I was just speaking to a friend of mine in law enforcement a few days ago about MS-13 and Mexican cartels down in Georgia. Oh, they're all over the place, my friends. But they, in the case of this school in Long Island, are directly tied. I remember, I'm not saying theoretically. I'm saying literally we know that some of the MS-13 members that have been involved in these terrible murders came into this country because of the ridiculous policies we have in place and all the media coverage about how, oh, we're just unaccompanied minors we're just taking in the future valedictorians of tomorrow well some of them are valedictorians some of them are murderers and maybe it's time we actually establish some control at our southern border maybe we don't allow an influx of people unvetted to just come into the country and say oh i'm fleeing violence find a place for me to live find a home for me now find a school system that has to take me find a community that has no choice but to try and assimilate me and, oh, by the way, they better hope that I'm not one of the bad ones. Because if you read this MS-13, I mean, it is a gut punch. This, this involves the two parents, you remember, from the State of the Union address. Those, the, the, those, those parents who lost their children that President Trump spoke to who were in the gallery. They were parents of students out of this high school. And one of their kids said the MS-13 has taken over the school. They were terrified. School authorities, local law enforcement couldn't do anything about it. They just sit and wait. 
and they've had students disappear, and then they find the bodies later. I mean, this is grisly. It's happening just outside of New York, where I am. It's happening in other parts of the country, and it is directly tied to the open borders, left-wing radicalism of the left and their preference for foreigners' rights over the interests and rights of Americans. That's what this all really comes down to. And that's why when we had uh, Jeff Sessions with us earlier on in the show, and I wanted to ask him about dealing with sanctuary cities, because we need to take this crap on, and we need it to stop. We'll hit a break. We'll be right back. So Hillary was giving some speeches over the weekend. Hillary was out there giving speeches, doing her thing. And sure enough, hello, she's back. In case you did not know what happened, she is around and she wants to let you know. She wants to let you know you will never escape. Wherever you are listening to this, you will never escape Hillary Clinton. If you have a radio, if you have a TV, if you have the Internet. She will find you. She is never, ever going away. Never! She wants you to know that. But she was weighing in at one of her speeches. I wonder, by the way, how much she gets paid now for speeches, as opposed to before. Because now you're actually paying for the privilege of Hillary's company, whereas before you were paying for access to somebody that was supposed to be the next president of the United States. I feel like the uh, dollar signs are going down on that a little. I'm just going to put that out there. I wonder what, I feel you probably get Hillary at a, at a half price now. Maybe even less. Maybe like a you know, two-for-one speech sale. But she spoke about Trump voters a little bit. You'll want to hear that. I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward, And his whole campaign, Make America Great Again, was looking backwards. You know, you didn't like black people getting rights. You don't like women, you know, getting jobs. You don't want to, you know, see that Indian American succeeding more than you are. Whatever your problem is, I'm going to solve it. How is it that this charming and insightful person did not become our next president? I sit here and wonder aloud. How is that possible? That uh, Madame Secretary didn't win when she's just, oof, as I am fond of saying, all the charm and whimsy of a Siberian prison guard. And, oh, she also spoke about white voters. Here's what she had to say about uh, We that. do not do well with white men, and we don't do well with married white women. Um, and part of that is a, an identification with the Republican Party, uh, and a, uh, a, a sort of ongoing pressure uh, to uh, vote the way that your husband, your boss, uh, wow. your son, whoever. Hillary's saying Republican vote that way because that's, you know, that's how their husbands vote. She's basically saying that, you know, Republican men tell their wives, like, get in the kitchen and vote for who I say. <gasps> and it's such a shock why they didn't vote for a Hello!
he's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Does any meeting between Trump and Kim not turn into a victory for the North Koreans? It's hard to imagine how how it doesn't. First of all, they've had a victory by setting the terms and by having the meeting itself. What I think is riskier, though, is to have a Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un hurling insults and threats yes, at each yeah. other. He will be impatient. And what is the downside if he gets angry at what he experiences? Yeah. Then you, it escalates because you have no but other option. Then you don't have meetings. diplomacy to go to exactly. because mm-hmm. you've exhausted your diplomacy. Then things go boom. That's the scary part. Then things go boom. There was a bunch of people on MSNBC talking about how terrible it is that Trump might meet with Kim Jong-un. I've talked to you a bit more about, or a bit already, about why I think that much of the pushback on this, the the outrage on the left, is just driven by anti-Trumpism more than any particular concerns over the intricacies of handling a North Korea diplomacy issue. That's what I think is happening here. Uh, because what is really the all, you know, we can, we can war game this out with each other right now, friends. What is the difference or what are the different options? You could continue as is. And let's look at that for a moment. What do we have in place? multilateral sanctions, all these different countries, sanctions against North Korea, U.N. sanctions against North Korea, China putting some constraints on North Korea's economy. Remember, North Korea is a very mountainous country, so exports of things like coal and uh, different minerals are very important to, to whatever export economy that it has. And it relies on a lot of stuff from outside because it doesn't really have that much arable land. There's some flat plains to the west, uh, coastal plains in, in the west of North Korea, and some more interspersed plains to the east, but it's, it's mountain ranges that run through North Korea. Um, and that's... So either this is a country that is under a lot of pressure economically right now because we're interdicting ships and we're trying to stop the ways that it's going about getting doing end runs on the sanctions. But you're trying to punish a country that is essentially a giant monument to punishment, depravity, and misery, right? You're trying to constrict an economy that's all... You're trying to starve, pardon the terminology, an economy that has already suffered a tremendous amount of deprivation. It just doesn't have much stuff for you to take away. It's not that much. And the people can't rise up because of the power and size of the police state. Remember... North Korea has the fourth largest standing army in the world after the United States, China, uh, Japan. I'm sorry, not Japan. The United States, China, India. That's what I'm looking for. United States, China, India, North Korea. Not Definitely not Japan. Uh, so it's a very large, I think about a million man standing army. A uh, million man plus. A very large military, and that's not even including the, the uh, security apparatus, the, the North Korean equivalent of the uh, the KGB, the Boibu, I believe it is called, because I know random stuff, and that's what I do. I, I sit around all day and read stuff so that I can come here on radio and tell you guys lots of interesting random things, and, and important random things, too. Actionable intelligence here on the Buck Sexton Show. That's what we should actually, you know what, we should probably put that up at the top. Let's make a note of that. 
Yeah, yeah, the future of radio. That's true, too. But actionable intelligence. Uh, so North Korea, they're saying we, we Trump is crazy to do this. This is what the left is saying. Meanwhile, if you look at the trajectory right now, you've got sanctions in place, trying to do all this stuff. But North Korea is still able to fire off its missiles, still able to get further with its nukes. And what will happen if it reaches a point where it is clear, and I don't even know if we'll really be 100% certain one way or the other, that it could hit the United States, the continental United States, with nuclear weapons. And I would note that it's not like, oh, they can fire one, now they're done. They're going to want to build up an arsenal and create different threats against us. And then we have the choice of either trying to hit them before they could go do something crazy and hit us, or accept that there'll be sufficient deterrence of a North Korean threat that we'll, we, we learn to live with a North, nuclear North Korea. Which I will note, if I were a betting man, I'd say that is probably the single most likely outcome in all of this, unless Trump is able to walk them back and achieve what I have been calling the most important. If he is successful, not in getting the meeting, getting the, yeah, anyone could have gotten the meeting. I'm not. I'm not blind to the fact that a sitting U.S. president sitting down with a sitting president sitting down. The, the current U.S. president having a direct talk with the North Korean leader is something that previous presidents certainly could have done, but they did not. They tried other ways, but those ways failed. And the security situation for us deteriorates with time. We do not have time on our side here. And that's why, as I look at this and I see what Trump is doing, I understand why he's willing to take... This is a good way to think about it. Trump is willing to take a major diplomatic risk because that's better than the alternative of the major military risk of a first strike on North Korea to try and eliminate their nuclear weapons program, which I would note they are trying very hard to hide that and spread it out and put it all over and deep in bunkers. And as I said, very mountainous, very rugged country. Uh, It's a a tough place, North Korea, just in terms of its topography. Uh, So that that will make it harder to hit the targets that we need to hit. And who knows if we'd be able to take them all out. And even if we did, by the way, North Korea has extensive uh, chemical weapons. We don't even know what they have in terms of chemical and biological. We may think we know, but history has shown us that that stuff is uh, pretty easy to hide. And we definitely can get that wrong. And they have enough conventional artillery to destroy much of Seoul and the surrounding suburbs, the capital of South Korea, in a very short period of time. It would be a massive bloodletting. So the the risk is what? Oh, a profit. People are saying this as though this is profound. Oh, my gosh. It'll give Kim Jong-un what he wants if Trump sits down with him. That is true. But also, we will have explored an option that is short of military force. That may just be what is needed to shake us out of of the current diplomatic inertia, right? It it may be exactly what the situation calls for, because what we have been doing does not work. If Kim, let let me add to what I'm saying a little bit to give a little more more meat on these bones. If this North Korean maniac known as Kim Jong-un, if he were to... Sit down from the sit down across the table from the press, and it'll probably be in the DMZ. People are saying, "Where is it going to be?" I'm guessing it'll be in the DMZ. They're going to meet in the 
in the center, right? And that's the way it's going to go. If they have this meeting, though, and then Kim is going to agree to some phased process of denuclearization, which I don't know if he will, because what he sees from the rest of the world is if you're a rogue state without nukes, you, you got a timer on you. If you're a rogue state with nukes, you're probably looking pretty good for a long time. Very tough. For, from outside threats, I've talked to you before. I've actually spent a lot of time reading the academic literature on how authoritarian regimes end, and it is overwhelmingly uh, from the inner circle. So that's why authoritarian regimes have a certain degree of longevity, because the security apparatus that's in place just becomes appropriated by the next strong man. But that's usually the way a strong man authoritarian gets pushed out of power is by those around him, by one of those around him. It's not by external factors. I think external factors uh, starting in the 20th century up till today is responsible for something like 25 to 30 percent total of strongmen being ousted. So it's pretty small overall, much more likely that it's uh, and, and then it's and it's about the same for revolution or, you know, overthrow. But a palace coup, that's what you really got to watch out for. So Kim might come back and and now we're playing this out in the future and looking at what what could have what what might happen. Who knows? But he comes back. He says, well, I'm the one who sat across from the the leader of the free world. And I think this is the way we've got to go for all. You know, maybe that is how we wake up. And all of a sudden we don't have a we don't have a North Korea that's just gunning for war. We all know if we unless we try. And the fact that the North Koreans are also under the most pressure they've ever been in been under goes to show, I think, the seriousness of the Trump administration on this. People who are saying that, uh, for example, the Iran deal. Oh, wait, we got Ben Rhodes on this one here. Ready? Play play Rhodes, the uh, the Obama foreign policy guy. Yeah. With the Masters in Fine Arts and Creative Writing, who somehow became like Chief Communications Propaganda Minister of the Obama administration. Here's what he had to say about this stuff. This is a very complicated piece of business. Uh, and just words on a paper about we're all for denuclearization. That's not what an agreement looks like. If you look at the Iran agreement, it mandates very strict international inspections over the life of that agreement and some that are permanent to ensure that Iran cannot achieve a nuclear weapons capability. And we need to see the same type of approach to North Korea if we can be assured that we're not just taking Kim Jong-un's word for it. So... Looking at the Iran deal and saying that this is a good example is is exactly the opposite of of what is true. Because in the Iran deal, they were under a tremendous amount of pressure. But the Obama administration showed up and said, well, we wanted we want a deal no matter what. And then the Iranians got everything they wanted and basically had to make zero painful concessions. Trump is going to show up and say, you're under a lot of pressure. We're not relieving any of that pressure. Here's what would have to happen. For us to consider, you know, moving forward on some kind of an agreement and then eventually uh, relieving this pressure. But it would have to be from your side first. Because Trump is not coming to this saying, oh, I've, you know, uh, I'm not leaving here without a deal. He's saying, OK, we'll talk. If it doesn't go well, we'll step away from it and say, well, you know, what, we we did what we could. And then at that point, I would note if Trump has to sit down with Kim Jong Un. And comes away from it, and there's nothing. I mean, all it is is a North Korea propaganda victory. All the anti-Trump people are saying, see, Trump didn't know what he's doing. Well, then, folks, we got to get very 
we, we need to be worried about the poss- the very real possibility of a war with a country that has a massive military and no regard really for human life. That That's disconcerting. Then, then I start to get a little concerned, too. I think up to this point, we've got some other options. But if this, you could say it's, you know, diplomatic Hail Mary, whatever you want to call it. But if this Trump overture does not, does not work, it will leave us with uh, very few options that are palatable, very few acceptable options. One more thing on this before we go to the break, and that is I still think that the greatest fear of many people you see in the media And I'm not trying to overstate this. I'm being honest with you. I think their greatest fear is not the possibility of a conflict with North Korea. I think the the part of all this that really worries them at a deep, visceral level is the prospect of Donald Trump pulling off the most important political, national security, diplomatic victory overseas since the end of the Cold War and what that would mean for his presidency and what it would mean for all these journalists who have been telling us that Trump is this buffoon and he doesn't know anything and he's, you know, he's just silly and everything else. What are they going to say then? How can they explain that Trump is anything but an incredible president, a truly great president, if he not only averts a major war with a nuclear with a nuclear armed state, but in the process also does a tremendous service for allies like Japan and South Korea, for the entire world, really, and also pushes forward a better life for about 25 million North Koreans in the process who were just caught up in this whole thing. I mean, Trump would be like Rushmore-ready status if he managed to actually get a denuclearized uh, Korean peninsula. That's the truth. I don't know if he'll get there or not, but I do know that there are some journalists who are terrified, utterly terrified, not of Kim Jong-un, but of Trump's success. Yeah, let that one roll around for a minute or two. We'll be right back. He seems to think that in this column I called him a Neanderthal. I did not. I would not. I've been studying Neanderthals. They had great uh, cave paintings. Those paintings spoke of a certain sensibility, a certain artistic complexity. Their tribes were organized. I would not call him a Neanderthal. That I would not be that. Out that you got low IQ. There you go. You got to stop there, guys. All right. You know. And, and then they complain, and that was a so-called conservative, by the way. And, and then they complain when Trump calls them out or says someone's low IQ. They're saying he's, he's lower than a Neanderthal. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, the guy that beat the most uh, in-the-tank Democrat, most sophisticated Democrat media apparatus in history. Right. I mean, they, they, yeah, I know they loved Obama, but o- Obama actually carried some of his own weight as a politician. I look, I'll give him credit for that. Could give a decent speech. All right. Let's not let's not just pretend that every everything the other side does is bad or they, they don't have people who are talented. Obama was a talented politician. No doubt about it. Hillary's not. They were just trying to it was just all the king's horses and all the king's men, my friends. They were just trying to carry Hillary to victory. And they thought they were going to do it easily. They couldn't. But, yeah, let's make jokes about him being a Neanderthal. That's hilarious. Kenny in Boston. 
What do you got, my friend? Hi, how you doing, Buck? I was listening to your whole thing about the North Korea thing, and wow, you you hit it. Either we think alike, or you you hit all the things that I was going to say. Thank you, Kenny. So you're saying uh, we're two we're two savvy guys who know what's up. Well, I hope that's the case with me. I know it is with you, but it is true. The NOCO regime has all that it's going for it is the nuclears. If they give up the nukes, uh, Kim Jong-un is done, and he knows it. So I don't think he's going to give up the nukes. I don't know how he's how they're going to get a diplomatic success out of this, but good luck to them. Anyway, that House conclusion that neither candidate colluded, isn't that what, a, what they said, that neither candidate colluded, right? Well, they're just going to ignore the part that Trump didn't collude, and they'll tout the part that their beloved Hillary, see, Hillary didn't collude. You know, this whole steel thing, this dossier, that's, that's you know, the, the, even the House said they didn't collude. That's, that's how it's going to be spun, don't you think? Uh, well, I mean, they're, they're going to avoid any discussion of, of Hillary colluding with a foreigner and using Russian intelligence or Russian information, at least, to undermine Trump. Yeah, they're going to pretend like that's not a problem when in reality that's the only thing we've really been able to prove so far. Kenny, up in Boston. Good to talk to you, my friend. I appreciate it. Um, by the way, we're on a new station up in Boston. i got to make sure, you know, people were asking about that before. We'll, we'll give you details on that uh, coming up in the next hour. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. The Washington Post published an editorial over the weekend that very clearly and explicitly advocates for eugenics. I don't know if you saw this piece. I don't know if you're familiar with it, so I'll tell you some of the the background necessary for our discussion. But I want you to just have that that thought in mind that the Post is now publishing editorials that are in favor of Eugenics of eliminating people from the population based upon undesirable characteristics. And it should be pointed out that this was one of the one of the uh, defining goals of the Nazi regime. And that there was, in fact, a time in the early 20th century when there were so-called experts who were pushing the notion of eugenics as a way to cleanse and purify society well outside of Nazi Germany, too. Um, and this specific piece in the Post was about, um, was about whether, well, the title was, I would have aborted a fetus with Down syndrome. Women need that right. Now, this is one of those clarifying moments that you have in political discussions when you come to recognize that there are some questions that really do matter. There are some issues on which we should understand that clarity is essential and that this isn't just about opinions. This isn't about how one feels on any given day or what's convenient. It's actually about what's ethical, what is right. Increasingly, as I get older, I try to embrace the idea that the purpose of life is to be virtuous and good. The purpose of life is not to be happy because happiness does come and go. And there are many things that are out of your control that'll make happiness really hard. But being virtuous, being moral, that's that is in your control. And uh, making the right choice when it comes to an issue of such great importance as this life, 
uh, whether to preserve and protect life or to extinguish it, to kill. Um, that's th- this is the this is the weighty moral issue of our time in our politics that separates clearly the left from the right. Uh, this is really the place I think where you have the most clear separation, in fact, between the Democrat and Republican parties. Between left and right, conservative and uh, liberal or conservative and progressive. This piece was was chilling, uh, chilling to read and then also the responses to it as well. Um, Here you have a an opinion writer in the Post. She's the deputy editorial page editor. So she works The Washington Post. And she is outraged because some states like Indiana, for example. Are trying to pass legislation to prevent what would be a practice of eugenics, which would mean that you find out as much as you can about a baby and then determine whether or not you want to have the baby based upon that. In this case, we're focused on Down syndrome. This is a discussion that's been had before in the media because of the coverage that CBS News gave to Iceland, which has, and this was being celebrated in Iceland, virtually eliminated Down syndrome from its population, but it's through abortion. That is the definition of what eugenics was trying to accomplish, by the way, to eliminate undesirables, to kill undesirables so that they no longer exist in the population and cannot reproduce. It's as uh, heinous and evil as exists. And yet, here's the Washington Post saying that a state that would want to prevent people from making women, from making the decision about whether or not to carry a baby to term, baby not a fetus, Uh, it should not be based upon whether there is a desirable characteristic or not. And the abortion lobby exposes itself here. It exposes itself because, well, as, as Ms. Marcus writes later on the piece, quote, technological advances in prenatal testing pose difficult moral choices about what, if any, genetic anomaly or defect justifies an abortion. Nearsightedness? Being short, there are creepy eugenic aspects of the new technology that call for vigorous public debate. But in the end, the Constitution mandates and a proper understanding of the rights of the individual against those of the state underscores that these excruciating choices be left to individual women, not to government officials who believe they know best. End quote. The Washington Post, my friends, one of its chief editorial writers, just said that Yeah, if you want to abort a baby because you want a blonde instead of a brunette, that's fine. That's your choice. Go for it. Nearsightedness? We don't want that. Don't have to wear glasses. You can abort it. Uh, I'm not exaggerating it. I read to you from the piece. And I would would note that this is not uh, anathema to the left. This is not a, a surprise. Abortion at any time for any reason. Abortion at any time for any reason or no reason. This is a central premise for the modern Democrat Party. This is at the very heart of their identity of what they believe and what they push for in public life. And that's why any restrictions of any kind, they believe they believe that there's a constitutional right to this. I mean, the whole notion that they do violence, obviously, to the unborn, but they do violence in a very different sense to the Constitution with this. They misconstrued the very words of our founding document to provide rights for themselves that simply do not exist because it suits their preferences. 
And because I think in the back of the minds of some intellectually honest leftists, there's a sense that eventually history will be very unkind to those who were the advocates for, the excuse makers for, this horrific process that killed tens of millions of unborn children, but also in this case very specifically was used to target the most vulnerable among us, those who are uh, born with difficulties, children with Down syndrome. Look, I know this is this is intense stuff, but if you are kind enough to give me the honor of your time, I, I feel compelled to share with you what I think are issues of tremendous importance to all of us, regardless of where the news cycle is and regardless of what is going to get the most listens and clicks and shares and everything else. I leave it. There are other people out there who are basically performance artists. I leave it to them. They're angry every day. They're yelling at the other side every day. They don't dive into what really matters. I've said to you before, and I mean it, if I manage to convince one woman listening to this show to carry a baby to term that she would not have otherwise, it will have all been worthwhile, even if I achieve no greater success than what I've already had, even if today is my last radio show. And I was thinking about this piece in particular about how the Democrat, and this is mainstream policy for them. It's just being written out here, but this is mainstream policy. And you'll notice that there's no moral clarification that they offer. There's no difference that they are willing to articulate between aborting a child because of Down syndrome or aborting a child because of hair color or, or because they believe for any reason whatsoever. They'll sometimes say, oh, let's talk about the life of the mother, although they'll, they'll actually make it a more complicated moral discussion. But in this case, they're saying no for, for any reason. And therefore, they have to embrace as a matter of policy, and they are embracing it, women who do prenatal testing because they want to find the most. And, and as the testing gets more advanced, I would note, what about for what about just for IQ? Well, this version, you know, this version of genetic material in the womb is not going to give me the kind of child that I want. So let's try again and let's just eliminate this one. It's disgraceful. It's disgusting to even think about this, but they embrace it. They embrace it. And what I I was reading other journalists over the weekend saying that this is brave for Ruth Marcus. This is not brave. This is the opposite of brave, actually. And I've spoken to many of my uh, conservative friends and colleagues of the year about how we don't spend nearly enough time as a society, I think, uh, praising and supporting those who make the very difficult choice. Because I'm I don't believe in I don't believe in perfection. I'm I'm a Catholic. I think that we're all making all kinds of mistakes all the time. Uh, but I know that everyone, we are sinners. We make mistakes. We do the wrong thing. But when it really matters, what do we do? You know, do people, do they wait till they get married? No. Do they, do, do mistakes happen in, within relationships where they don't think they're going to get pregnant? They do? Yes, absolutely. I know that that happens. It happens all the time. It's a reality. It's a fact of life. But the very important choice of whether or not to carry a child to term, and, and that inc- up to and including somebody who carries a child to term and then gives it up for adoption. And what a selfless, you want to talk about brave, what a selfless and beautiful thing to do for another human being. You know, that's heroic. You know, the, the mother who knows that she will have a child who has Down syndrome and who knows that she will also give that child as much of her love and support as she possibly can, even though it will be difficult, that's brave. 
I just happened to be at at lunch. I was uh, sitting at the counter of a of a place. It's actually in a converted bus stop in uh, in downtown Savannah, Georgia. And there was a young girl who was sitting right next to us with her parents, and she had Down syndrome, and she was enjoying what looked to be a delicious uh, chicken sandwich. And her mom and dad were there with her, and they were having some food, and they were all having a very nice time, and they were engaging, and she had loving, doting parents from all that I could see, and she was having fun, and she was laughing. She looked to be maybe, I don't know, 17 or 18. And I just remember thinking after I read this article and and thinking back to that, that girl, those parents made the right choice. And I, I would bet anything that I have that in 30 or 40 years, when they look back on moments, maybe I don't know them. I didn't talk to them. I just, but if they had any doubts about that choice before they made it, I know that in 30 or 40 years and that today as well, they know that they made the right choice. So this is uh, this is a, this is when it matters, my friends. This is one of those issues where public advocacy where spreading the word spreading the truth has a real impact because we're talking about saving lives and it is uh it is deeply distressing that there are very educated and elite folks among us who have had tremendous advantages in life and they don't see like ruth marcus here in this editorial in the washington post that they are advocating for the extinction of the unborn based on imperfections when all of us have imperfections and that they're advocating for a policy of eugenics it's just a question of who the eugenics are directed at this time uh, we will uh, we'll hit a quick break team we'll be right back covered a lot of ground today on the show. We've gone over all kinds of stuff. I'm going to have to hold off on, there are a few things I wanted to get to today that I'm going to tell you right now. Or a Home Depot, $50 million to train workers. I'd like to get into a bit of that. Uh, the proposal that's out there right now that we should actually let Assad win in Syria. Some are backing this. This is now turning into a more serious policy discussion than it was before. Um, so there's that's that's something else. And uh, the uh, Pennsylvania election, because it is tomorrow, I feel like we will get into more of a deep dive on that tomorrow. And I think that's a uh, I think that is a sensible way to approach it. So we, I'm already basically telling you we've got three hours of show for tomorrow and it's not even Tuesday yet. So we're ready to go. Um, but I've been trying to find for all of you so we could have a discussion here on the show about it. The most compelling and articulate case I could for why Trump's tariffs and his uh, America first economics approach is not the unmitigated debacle that so many are saying it is. And sure enough, finally, there was one in the, there was a piece in the New York Times it was published. It was obviously not a, a uh, left wing author, but there was a piece on this. Uh, that was 
taking the approach of, look, Trump pushing for tariffs is not just about what is going to make the most money. There is something more to it than that, that what tariffs will do in the context of Trump's policies is protect other things that we think are important. For example, there is the national security component of all of this. Uh, and that steel is necessary for a company to maintain going forward. Right now, we probably think, why? We can buy all the steel we need. No big problem. Well, if in 10 or 15 or 20 years, we get into a place where there is a, an imminent uh, military confrontation with China, which would be horrific and I hope never happens. But if that were the case, we might lose access to a whole lot of steel that we needed and lose it very quickly. That there is a a concern of access to raw materials. I mean, this has played out in history many times. Those of you who are World War II uh, buffs certainly know that one of the reasons Japan sees so many of the uh, islands in Southeast Asia and down along the, the Pacific Island chains that it, it did was to protect its access to raw materials, notably rubber um, and oil and some other stuff that it needed. So... Raw materials for war making are a necessary national security consideration and not for tomorrow. I think that's why people kind of go, oh, that's so silly. Well, having domestic industries that could support our war fighting efforts, those are not things that you want to let linger or languish. You, you don't want to just let that deteriorate over time. So that's one component of it. There's another one written in this piece that I thought was was worth spending a little bit of time on, and that is... The need to, for just the reasons of politics, not of what will most boost GDP. This piece was saying in the Times, it was saying that, sure enough, if you're, free trade may be the best option if, uh, maybe the best option if all you want is maximum GDP, maximum financial output when you're doing it. And this was by Daniel McCarthy, and the piece was called The Case for Trump's Tariffs and America First Economics. It was published in the New York Times. Uh, he's the editor of uh, Modern Age, a conservative review. Anyway, he's saying that the need to protect a middle class that is tied to the manufacturing sector also has political ramifications. And that even if it means that the people that are doing better in the economy uh, don't necessarily make as much, effectively saying if this has some negative impact on the stock market, that is offset uh, at some level by the need to protect a robust middle class for the reasons of political harmony in this country. He writes, quote, tariffs are not magic. Sometimes the unintended consequences at home and retaliation from overseas can be devastating. But trade wars like shooting wars shouldn't be avoided with preemptive surrender, which is what the free trade regime amounts to for America's long term security and middle class prosperity. Steel towns throughout the northwest and mid northeast and midwest have been losing a trade war for decades because they cannot count on their leaders in Washington to fight for them. End quote. So that's what I've been saying. That China has already been fighting a trade war against us. We just don't fight back. Maybe it's time to change that. Maybe Trump is at least willing to give it a chance. Give it a shot. Um, oh, I'm going to talk to you a bit about uh, something I learned when I was down in Savannah coming up here in a few minutes. Something I never heard about before, but I was exposed to it a little bit. Something called a momcation. We'll get into that and a whole bunch of other stuff, including a roll call 
you got some thoughts for me, by the way, officialteambuck at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash bucksexit. Be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Just how biased is the mainstream media? It is a question for which we uh, don't have an easy answer, but we have a new data point for it. I still occasionally come across people who are in the media who really do think that it has it has become uh, overblown how left-wing the dominant media outlets are, uh, that they think that this is now a, a, a problem that if they admit that it ever existed, they are correcting it now. They are in the process of uh, it has been corrected, maybe. But this was, this was a bit much even for what I would expect to be the, the way that we would think about the mainstream media. This is from uh, the New York Post. Former New York Times executive editor Jill Abramson revealed in an opinion this week about the 2020 election a bizarre superstition. Abramson, who has a New York Times-inspired tattoo, which, look, I'm not one to cast aspersions on how people choose to decorate themselves, but I can tell you this, I've never thought about getting a tattoo that was based on my place of work. You know, that, that to me is, you know, what's next? I'm going to get a tattoo of my social security number on me. It seems it seems a little weird. Anyway, she wrote, it's uh, quote, it's easy to look at what's happening in Washington, D.C. and despair. That's why I carry a little plastic Obama doll in my purse. I pull him out every now and then to remind myself that the United States had a progressive African-American president who until very until very recently Some people find this strange, but you have to take comfort where you can find it in Donald Trump's America. This is borderline certifiable. This is certainly in the realm of what we would have to call a Trump derangement syndrome. When you need the equivalent, when you're an adult who was the executive editor of the New York Times, no less. So I think she's the one that's really calling the shots day in and day out. Uh, When you have her and she is carrying around with her an Obama good luck charm, then I think it's fair to say that something really wrong, that something really bizarre has happened in the media, that they have had some kind of a break with reality. That's what I really, that's what I just wanted to, to point out here. It's... So weird. I mean, just think about it for a second. Like, if I told you that I, for comfort, carried around a small doll of a politician with me, I'm assuming uh, 24-7, that's why I carry a little plastic Obama doll in my purse. You know, there's a, a term for this, folks. It's called idol worship. You know, we used to accuse the Obama administration and the, the, or accuse the media during the Obama administration of Obama worship. We meant it in terms of their fawning coverage, of how dishonest they were, of how they're just like, oh, he's amazing. He's the most brilliant, handsome, perfect, wonderful president ever, wonderful person ever. He's so, 
He's so perfect. But I didn't think that we would actually have a very senior journalist of what is probably the premier left-wing Democrat organ in the country just freely admit that she, in fact, has a a shrine. She has a mobile shrine to Obama that she carries on her at all times. Uh, you know, th- this reminds me of... You know, in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, people would have a little statuette of their preferred uh, divinity, and they would pray, and if, if it was about trying to, for a good harvest or trying to get pregnant or whatever it may be, they'd pray to these smaller divinities because they couldn't afford to have a giant statue in their home. Uh, that's kind of what this is. Uh, Jill Abramson, the executive editor of the New York Times, more or less carries around an Obama statue to pray to. Now, she wouldn't call it praying, but it's pretty close, you know. If if this were a little statue of of Buddha, for example, we would say, "Oh yeah," as a Buddhist would, right? But because this is a little statue of Obama, she carries around. We're supposed to think this is kind of normal. I'm not trying to make too much of this in the sense that she's allowed to carry around with her whatever statue of remember she wants. It's not that. It's just weird, right? And this is a person who understands the way that the public is going to view subject matter, understands public perception, how to manipulate it, and has to know at some level that this is utterly bizarre, right? Has to know that it's a very strange decision she has made over this time, you know? But I guess it might at least be true, unlike when Hillary said that she was carrying around hot sauce in her purse. Hot sauce! Love it! Because that was just Hillary in full-on pandering mode. You know, I, I just love to carry hot sauce around. Uh, oh, gosh. And we know Hillary was not carrying around a little Obama doll. So there's that little plastic Obama doll. Ah, the media is, uh, is in a state of derangement right now. It is true. There's a, real, there's a real problem with them and how they see the world around them. And it is up to us, I think, as... Fellow Americans, good neighbors, nice, friendly people, to just make sure they understand that this is not normal. It's not okay. Roll call coming up. So, a little wrap up to my time in Savannah my friends, which uh, was great. We had a lot of fun. Even did a little ghost tour Saturday night, which was really more like a history tour. Not really. There were no ghosts. I mean, I wasn't expecting to see a ghost per se, because that might be asking a bit much of the tour guide. But there wasn't enough spooky stuff. In New Orleans, there was some really spooky stuff. In Savannah, which is supposed to be the most haunted city, I think it's the most haunted city in the world, according to the Institute of Paranormal Studies or something like that. Uh, whatever that is. So uh, we did the little tour thing, and, and that was fine. But the, the best part of Savannah is the food and the people. The people are super nice, and the food is, is delicious. It's really, really good. I get excited when people are like, oh, I don't know, all, all, all you might be able to eat on this menu are grits because you're gluten-free. I was like, that's okay. Well, I'll be okay. Just give me a big plate of grits with a lot of things in it. And then one other funny side note, I remember I was checking in the hotel there was a whole uh, group of ladies. Actually, when uh, when Miss Molly was checking the hotels when this happened, but I was downstairs and there was this whole group of ladies, 
And you know, and I'd say ranging in age from their late thirties into their maybe mid to late forties. And they're just they just came in there as like a pack of fifteen or twenty of them. And they and the uh, front desk clerk said, you know, so what are you, what are you all what are you all here for? And and I wasn't gonna do a Georgia accent there, but it almost came out. And sure enough, one of the one of the moms said, and I know that they're moms. So we're just like a mom squad, and we're here on a momcation. And the clerk, obviously curious about this whole thing, said, well, so what's a momcation? said, well, so we're just like being moms all the time. So we just like came down here because we just need like a few days where like someone else is taking care of the kids. And like we all get to like get many patties and like drink some champagne and like just hang out. And they were... Uh, the the whole weekend I was down there, the mom squad was was maneuvering around the hotel. I get upstairs, they're just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, when are we all going on the hop on hop off tour? There's these fifteen uh, moms, y- y- youngish moms, um, who are all going around. So I learned a new term though. I I never heard of a momcation before. Maybe they made. That. Have you guys heard of that? Is that a thing? No. Maybe the mom squad just came up with it on the fly. But sure enough, it. Uh, it was something I learned about. And they were just like having so much fun, drinking bolinis and going to brunch. And it was amazing. So, yeah, there was that. Maybe maybe one day I'll go on like a, a, a thing. A dadcation is just when you get to go to the woods and no one can bother you. You know, like no one's allowed to ask you any questions. All right. Uh, the, by the way, some of you have been asking. So I like roll call, but I want to know how I can get in on that action because I want my brilliant thoughts to be shared on the airwaves across the country. And I would say, well. There's a very easy way for you to do that. You can send us message, <laughs> messages. There we go. Messages at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Or you can send an email to official team buck at gmail.com. Uh, we will be checking the email box for tomorrow. Today we're going to we're gonna do mostly Facebook. So with that, hit it, my friend. I love these tunes, and I'm on a momcation, so it's hey, time. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. For roll call. All right. Gets me in that funky mood. End of the show, too. Now, now I want the show to continue. That's the thing. Maybe we should probably open the show with something like that, and the end of the show should be more like, all right, everybody, time to just chillax. Uh, we'll get into it here. Um, Larry, with the following. So... Netflix is giving Obama a show where he will produce stories of important social issues. So basically, an army of minions will make a social justice show. Obama will put his name on it and actually do no work. Larry, I think that is almost certainly the case. I very much doubt that Obama, who is worth tens of millions and soon be worth over $100 million, he might already be there is going to spend a lot of his free time writing or producing for Netflix shows. But Obama, and this is what I was talking about last week, Obama is a brand now. You have to think of Obama uh, the way you think of Ellen or Oprah or any of those huge media brands that are out there uh, because he is going to have influence in the culture, and the culture is where it is upstream from... Politics. I think Bright, Andrew Breitbart used to say that, although I've heard other people say it, too. So that's why the Obama Netflix show has some real importance. Uh, just it's showing us what's going to be happening down the line. It's a taste of things to come. David, 
David is next here. Please design an OSS shirt, a World War II theme, but short of stolen valor. Okay, would be awesome, and I would absolutely buy one. Well, David, we are going to be revamping some of our merch and getting some of that stuff going here in the in the new year. So I like that idea. We should have an OSS shirt for original Saturday Squad. That'd be a fun item to put up there. So thank you very much uh, for the pointer, Sean. Next up here, bro. She, Sean and I are tight, so he knows he can just call, he just calls me bro, and I know I'm like that's right. Oh my gosh, Sean, you just call him bro, because you know you guys are like BFF. Old school commie bear was on point, Sean says. As an OSS member, or as I like to refer to my membership, as a veteran of the Buck Legion, shields high, testudo, no quarter given. I like this guy. Commie bear's propaganda was always entertaining. Lastly, does Sea Bear prefer the old school AK-47 or the newer AK-74? Keep up the great work. Sean... Fantastic message. Phenomenal question. Seabear prefers the old school AK-47. Um, and honestly, he really likes actually the Saddam style of like a gold plated AK. But he realizes that that's not for the, for the conscripts around him. That doesn't necessarily send the best message. Uh, but the, the old school AK is quite a weapon. It's amazing how for decades now, the uh, sort of global world order has in one way or another been broken down into M16s versus AK47. So that's that's really been the that's really been the the fight of freedom for a long time now in in shorthand. So, let's see what else we've got here now. Um hold on a second. There's more. There's more coming. I'm just for some reason my this always happens. Um Brian is next up. He writes Buck, I know your Facebook is your go-to, and I get it. Facebook is the go-to for high school, college friends, and moms. Uh, Moms-in-law, that is. Whoa. Rough. Lovingly, my liberal mother still sees the Democratic Party as that that existed in the JFK era. We know that times have changed, and the older generation just uses Facebook to see family pictures. To that point... Um, I don't post too much politics on Facebook as I feel like it'll just get into stupid arguments. That's good, Brian. You will not change anyone's mind on Facebook with arguments, honestly. Uh, What's up with Buck Sexton Radio, that account on Twitter? It has been inactive since January 10th. It should be more active, Brian. Producer Mike, what's up with Buck Sexton Radio? You don't even even know about this account, do you? I don't even know about this account. So I think we control it. So, uh, Brian... Thank you for knowing more about our social media presence than we in the Freedom Hut do. Uh, we will find who has control of this account in here. Someone does. And we will make the necessary adjustments to it. Because we should have it under control. Um, thank you. All right, next up here. Uh, Steven. Steven writes, love the Nintendo 64 GoldenEye. Civilization was awesome, too. Alas, adult life with a wife and two boys, uh, two young boys, doesn't allow for such pursuits. It's nearly impossible to game with a boy asleep on you. Well, Stephen, you have a much better uh, mission than defeating Montezuma as Genghis Khan, leader of the Mongols. Montezuma, of course, leader of the Aztecs in civilization. Abraham Lincoln chosen as the American. Wait, or was it Washington. I think it was Lincoln. In, in Sid Meier's Civilization, wasn't Lincoln the American? I get confused because there's so many different iterations of it. It's all right. 
we'll, we'll figure it out. Gandhi was the Indian leader, which I found interesting because all of a sudden I was sometimes playing as Gandhi and I was like nuking, nuking places, which seemed counterintuitive. Nonetheless, um, I, I was a little surprised at how much pushback I got just from saying, remember last week I talked a little bit about video games. I used to love video games. I've played a lot of video games, probably more than I would admit freely uh, over the course of my life. But um, I, I feel like video games have gotten more realistic, and therefore the violence in them uh, has a little bit more of a lasting and, and lingering effect. I wasn't saying ban any of it, though. I was just saying I was surprised at how violent. I mean, guys, I don't know if you saw the, what the president was shown in terms of violent video games, and I don't think that there's a link between first-person shooters and, and school shootings or anything like that. Uh, but some of the stuff was, like, real anatomically correct, nasty violence. I was just a little taken aback by it. I remember when video games were things like Pac-Man and Myst. And remember Myst? Do you guys even know? Remember Myst? M-Y-S-T? You don't know? That game was like the thing for a while. It was, it like took up much of my early life. It was amazing. Actually, I think it was a little bit over. Civilization was the one where I'd be like, I have not moved in eight hours. I'm going to be a 12-year-old who has a blood clot in his legs from playing Civilization for so many hours on end. That was the one that really just sucked me in. And then a game called Medieval Total War, which also took over my life for periods of time. That game's amazing, by the way. All right, we're going to close out the Freedom Hunt for tonight. Thank you so much for joining, team. Always an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to have you here. Check out the latest on BuckSexton.com. We're going to have new and exciting things going on there for you in the weeks and months ahead. So uh, make it a habit now. And until tomorrow night, my friends, shields high. Shields high.